um, really warm welcome to you, particularly if this is your uh, first time here. If it is, I wonder um, how you're getting on, how you're feeling. Uh, for maybe for some of you, it might, maybe it's just been a crazy weekend and you were just so glad when you arrived to see a donut and a cup of coffee. Um, my weekend's been a little bit like that. My wife has been away for the whole weekend, leaving with my three little boys, so three under five, um, for the whole weekend on my own. First time ever. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's too, it's too much, it's too much. First time ever, I think probably last time ever. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, um, we drove to Ikea purely for the free childcare. Some, some of you have done that right, you know you have. I've had to view it like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if you've seen that. We're at the bottom of the triangle. Our most fundamental need is just basic survival. Just forget ev- about everything else and survive. And I'm glad to report we are all alive. Um, there is still actually four hours to go. Uh, well, actually, three hours, 25 minutes and 15 seconds. But who, who's counting? Um, but if, if that's you and you're just like glad to have a coffee and a donut, Welcome, take it easy, have another one at the end. Um, but you, you may be here just feeling a little un- unsure, like you're waiting for like, the big sell moment, you know, like everything everywhere has strings attached. Or you may be just be taking everything in, perhaps this is just a totally unfamiliar environment. And maybe that you're full of questions like, what on earth is all the singing about? And um, why are there so many people here? And is this, really, is this really a church? It doesn't look like one. But however you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, it's totally valid. Um, No questions are off limits, and we're just really pleased that you're here. And I just want to spend the next 20 minutes or so not trying to sell anything uh, or even really convince you of anything, Um, but instead I'd just love to invite you to consider something this morning. Who's, um, Who's seen the Antiques Roadshow? Yeah, of course, most of us have. I catch it occasionally, like... Most of the time, I just watch really cool things, um, but, you know, um, sometimes if it's on. Um, but the most amazing moments are when someone brings something in that they don't think is worth anything, and they get it appraised only to find that it is. Perhaps you saw this one if you're, if you're a fan. This is um, the, this paperweight. Um, they just sat on this teacher's desk in St. Ives uh, for years. No one thought anything of it, and on a whim, they took it along to the roadshow only to find out that it was an original Barbara Hepworth sculpture. And uh, how much do you wonder how much you think that is worth? 750,000 pounds. Could you imagine? Or what about this one? This was um, Terry Nourish had this vase um, for years and thought nothing of it. It actually served um, in their family as a makeshift goalpost for his children's football games. (laughs) Anyway, takes it to the roadshow only to discover that it's late 19th century French, and he sold it later that year for 668,000 pounds. Crazy. Do you ever just wish that would happen? Like sometimes after watching it, I just find myself sitting in my house just wondering, like, am I missing something? Like, do, (laughs) do we have anything that might be like that? I wonder, could that vase be 17th century French? And, uh... Sadly, everything in my house just has I-K-E-A on the bottom. It's not free childcare. You just got to know that. It's the most expensive childcare out there. 
I suspect that the paperweight will no longer be left on the desk. The vase will probably never, ever be used as a football post again. Both items will be treated differently because they're valued differently. They're valued differently because they're seen differently. And they're seen differently because someone decided to take a second look. And this morning, I'd love to invite you, I guess, just to take a second look. You don't have to land where I have or where anyone else has. There's no pressure at all, but I'd love to invite you for a brief moment this morning to consider the person of Jesus, to take a second look. Because the chances are you probably have some concept of him already, right, from school assemblies or Sunday school, from Christians you've met or worked with, or just bits that you've picked up from culture, film, art, books, the news. You probably have some ideas about him. And there are just so many popular presentations out there. Um, there's the, uh, the fictional, mythological Jesus, who didn't really exist, but he's just one more in a long line of other fictional characters or superheroes. There's the, um, the meek and mild Jesus, sweet, passive, who wouldn't say boo to a goose. You know, the blonde-haired Jesus of modern Western presentation, normally with like a lamb on his shoulders. Or there's the... Uh, there's the finger-wagging Jesus, the judgmental Jesus who stands behind and over his equally judgmental church. <laughs> or maybe the Jesus of optimistic bumper car stickers um, who, seems, <laughs> who seems radically detached from any real engagement with the world. I like that. <laughs> He seems radically detached from any real engagement with the world. Or the Jesus of fridge magnets, inventor of helpful one-liners who can help us with our diets. Um, <laughs> but, who <ultimately, laughs> but who ultimately seems pretty peripheral to our real, real needs. Or perhaps the Jesus who just coined some good phrases, who taught some good things, but really that's all. There's so many popular images of this person, Jesus, which in and of itself actually is strange, isn't it? He never had an empire, he never held office, he never led an army, never won a Nobel Peace Prize, never did any of the things for which people are normally remembered, and yet his influence is really without parallel. However you understand it, however you understand him, it is remarkable, isn't it, that one person from an obscure little town in the Middle East, a carpenter, could generate that level of interest, could be the subject of so much art, love, anger, such wide opinion across cultures, across two millennia. It's remarkable. So I don't know what your concept of Jesus is, but to a greater or lesser degree, you probably have one. And I'd love to invite you today just to consider taking a second look. Because the picture of Jesus that culture paints is actually quite different to the picture we get from the earliest reports of him. And I want to spend a few moments looking at one of those reports this morning. It's a story about Jesus found in Luke's gospel in the New Testament in the Bible. And, um, and I think it's particularly helpful, this story, because it contrasts so many of those popular presentations of him. So I'm just going to read it and make um, four observations about the way Jesus is portrayed here. And I hope it might encourage us this morning towards taking a second look. So Luke chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles, if not, it'll come up on the screen. It says this, one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were like the religious elite of the day, one of the Pharisees 
asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman of the city, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is that is touching him. For she is a sinner. Turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Amazing story, a bit bizarre. It points to our ears 2,000 years later. But I just want to make four quick observations about the Jesus that we see here. And the first is this. Jesus is present, presented here <clears throat> as real, not fictional. As real, not fictional. With my two older boys, Rubens uh, 5, Ezra's 3, we're going through this phase <clears throat> sorry, where they are trying to work out what is real and what isn't. Every superhero you can think of, Daddy, is Superman real? I'm like, no. Is Clark Kent real? No. So there's no one anywhere in the world called Clark Kent. And I'm like, well, I, 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 maybe. And they're like, I knew it. <laughs> Or, Daddy, is Black Panther real? I'm like, no. Daddy, Black Panthers are real. Look at this book. He brings his big cat's book. And I'm like, man alive. <laughs> Daddy, what about Santa? And I'm like, whoa, that's nice. Just avoid. <laughs> and it's important. You know, the other day, Ezra, my three-year-old, was at the top of the stairs, dressed as Mr. Incredible. Um, it's pretty standard. We, I mean, we went to Pizza Express with Mr. Incredible the other day. Just can't get him out of that thing. Um, but dressed as Mr. Incredible, and I just heard him say from the top of the stairs, Mr. Incredible, he could jump all the way down, couldn't he, Daddy? As I can see him, like, weighing up the option. Whatever our age, distinguishing between what is real and what isn't is important. A recent study actually suggested that 40% of people in the UK actually don't think Jesus was a real person. He didn't really exist. But actually, it's interesting, because it's not actually even debated, really, among historians. The weight of evidence is similar to that of other historical figures, like Julius Caesar, for example. For historians, Jesus definitely did exist. He really was a real person. Because the passage that we just read is in the Bible, we can think, oh, it has some mysterious quality to it. You know, it's like, it's in the Bible. Um, but it's actually, uh, firstly, a historical document, <clears throat> a report of Jesus' life. If you look at the way the author Luke starts this um, account a few pages earlier, he writes this <clears throat> in chapter 1. <clears throat> it should come up on the screen. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have happened, handed down to us by those who are eyewitnesses. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
That's how he starts his whole book. It doesn't sound very mysterious, does it? It's not in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time. Luke was a doctor, a contemporary of Jesus, and he's just reporting what he's seen and heard. Theophilus, we think, may have been a Roman official interested in just all the noise about Jesus. Just real people in a real place, in a real time. And so reading, reading this isn't like reading Lord of the Rings or your favorite John Grisham or um, reading about Spider-Man or Clark Kent, no matter what my little Ezra will tell you. Um, these are his, historical documents about a real Jesus in a real place, in a real time. And I wonder if you've never considered that, whether that alone might be something that would encourage you just towards taking a second look. But also in this passage, we have Jesus as pre- presented as strong, not weak. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They held power, they held prestige, they were respected, feared, held in high honor. And the, in the passage, they're angry with this woman, and they're angry for two reasons. Firstly, as shocking as it is to us, in that day, women were just not allowed to be part of meals in this way. They were treated as second-rate citizens. She was just not allowed to be here like this. And secondly, she was a woman. She, not only was she a woman, sorry, but commentators think she was likely a prostitute. Unthinkable for the Pharisees. And they are so angry so disgusted that in another report of this same incident, it says that they snorted with anger. I don't know about you, I've never seen anyone snort with anger. There might be a few laugh snorters out there today, but anger snorters, I don't know. But in that culture in that day, it was a sign of total disgust. But look at Jesus. Does he cower under the pressure of their opinions? These were, the power of, these were the people of power and influence, the people whose opinions ruled the day. Does he throw the woman under the bus so that he can be chummy with those in power? Is he passive? Is he quiet? Is he weak? Does he avoid conflict like I try to in, in almost whatever the cost? No. <clears throat> he does the opposite. He defends her. He stands up for her. He criticizes the Pharisees and he commends this woman. Standard etiquette as a guest was to be greeted with a kiss, to be given water to wash your feet and oil for your head. And Jesus affirms that this woman has succeeded where his hosts had failed. He's siding with her against the powerful. And it's actually not the only story where Jesus isn't afraid to confront the Pharisees. He goes even as far in one place as calling them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? He just calls out their hypocrisy. And, you know, it must have been so awkward for the disciples. I, I, don't, I struggle with anything like this. You know, I find it difficult watching something like Andrew Marr or Jeremy Paxman. You know, does anyone else just find it difficult to watch where they're saying what needs to be said, but it's just so awkward. I'm like, I can't take it. But this isn't meek, mild, passive Jesus. Luke portrays him as defending the weak, calling out the proud and the hypocritical, as culturally subversive, treating this woman and others like her with dignity and equality, challenging injustice, full of conviction, unafraid. 
the passive, meek and mild Jesus with a lamb around his neck just doesn't fit. And I love it. He stands up for the least and the downtrodden. I wonder whether that's how you've seen him. Maybe that could be something to encourage us towards taking a second look. The third point is, is that Jesus doesn't fit the image of finger-wagging, sin-punishing, judgmental figure either. The Pharisees certainly do. They know this, who this woman is, they know what she does, and they're disgusted, full of judgment, full of condemnation, full of hate, angry at her mere presence. But again, look at Jesus. Does he pull away in disgust? Does he join them? Does he dismiss her? No, he affirms her. He welcomes her. He gives her dignity. He protects her. In one report, it says, he says of her, she has done a beautiful thing. However we look at it, however you look at this passage, Jesus isn't the finger-wagging person in it. And actually, that would be the experience of many of us here today. We all make mistakes, don't we? I mean, even just if you take God out of the equation for a moment, have you ever done anything that, just, that you wish you hadn't? Or done something, or not done something that you wish you had? We all have. Just on the basis of our own standards, we know that we fall short so often. Personally, I'm very aware of mistakes that I've made, of decisions and attitudes that I've had that I wish I hadn't had, of things that I've done that I wish I hadn't, and things that I haven't done that I wish that I had. But I've found in Jesus, just like in this story, not judgment or anger, but grace and kindness, acceptance, no matter what. And if you read this Changing Lives booklet that we mentioned earlier, you'll hear the same in every story. The Jesus they talk about knowing sounds just like the Jesus in this report. Kind, gracious, nothing like the finger-wagging picture we get told. He's not the judgmental one in this story. The picture of Jesus the Jesus of angry placards is so far from the picture we get in these reports. Over and over, those who are on the fringe, who couldn't find acceptance anywhere else, actually find it in Jesus. They couldn't find acceptance anywhere else and yet find it in Jesus. I wonder whether that's how you've seen him. And finally in this passage, Jesus doesn't quite fit the just good teacher picture either. Um, according to reports about him, Jesus did teach everywhere he went, drawing huge crowds. But the reports about him seem to go beyond that too. Um, and we see that, I think, here in this passage. What the woman in the passage did is interesting because it's extraordinarily costly on so many levels. It's costly for her personally. She goes to, she goes to the house knowing that she wouldn't be welcome, knowing that they hated her and everything she stood for, knowing that their eyes would be on her, judging her, and yet she goes. Imagine how she would have felt going, approaching the house. It's costly for her personally, and it's costly for her financially. That perfume that she, that she pours in Jesus' feet was nard, and it was found in the flowers at the feet of the Himalayas. And it was hugely expensive because of how far it had to travel along trade routes. 
equivalent, we think, to, of today to around 25,000 pounds. And another report, again, of this same, um, this same moment uh, says that she didn't just open it and pour out a little out, but she broke it, just pours the whole thing at the feet of Jesus. It's costly for her financially, and it's costly for her dignity. In that culture, women never showed their hair. A woman's hair was to be let down in the moment of intimate encounter between a husband and wife only. And yet she comes into this house and she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with it. Feet that would have been dirty from walking in the dust and the dirt. Why do this? Why go there? Why embrace such a cost? Well, it says in the passage that she knew that Jesus was there and she comes to Jesus in this way because she knows that he will forgive her. And he does. He doesn't hold her mistakes over her. But forgiveness wasn't the role of a teacher. In Jewish understanding at the time, it was something that only God could do. She comes to him knowing that he offers something beyond anything that a teacher could. And she's just full of gratitude. The cost she embraces shows how valuable she thinks Jesus is. And she's not, actually, she's not alone in seeing Jesus in this way. In fact, Jesus' 11 immediate disciples saw him as valuable to the point where they would eventually lose their lives for him. In fact, as the story about Jesus spread, it did so under extreme persecution from Rome. Christians, it's horrific, but Christians were fed to lions, stoned to death, and yet they counted Jesus worth it. As sobering as it is, the same is true today in some places. I heard one elderly lady called Hannah speak in November. She, I don't, she must be 70, 80 years old, hunched over, small little lady. And she told her story to this auditorium full of people. She was born in North Korea, where it was illegal to follow Jesus, and yet she believed in Jesus. She and her husband decided to follow him despite the risks Eventually, they were discovered, they were taken to prison and told that they needed to reject Jesus, but they wouldn't. They were taken, she said, to separate rooms and beaten to the point that when they were put back in the same room together, in her own words, we didn't recognize one another. And yet, they continued to follow Jesus. Her husband died from his wounds and, um, and she eventually escapes to China just on her own. And do you know what she does? She starts a church by crawling into a, woman, uh, into a women's prison every night to tell them about Jesus, in whom she saw such value. And as she spoke to this room, this auditorium, telling her story, she said how there had been a song that she had sung all the way through, from childhood, through prison, through the loss of her husband, through the pain and sorrow. And she sang it in this auditorium. This frail woman, and you could have heard a pin drop. And she sang this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. I'd rather have him. To her, he was a immeasurable value. 
this lady, the disciples, the woman in the passage, and so many others, demonstrate the value they place on Jesus by the price they're willing to pay for Jesus. For them, he is far, far more than just a good teacher. But this passage's story, it's just one story about Jesus. Luke goes on to say that Jesus healed people, gave blind people sight, calmed the sea, fed 5,000 with five loaves, that Jesus was arrested, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that a few days later that he rose from the dead. Remember, all the time, Luke is just writing this report for a guy called Theophilus, based on eyewitness testimony. It's just like he's saying, I'm just telling you what I heard, but people said that he rose from the dead. But I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that case today. I'm not even trying to really convince you of it. All I really want to do is invite you to take a second look. For me, personally, I found Jesus to be everything that these pages and reports suggest that he is. Through good and bad times, through the loss of my dad three years ago, through the loss of our little baby girl two years ago, over and over, Jesus has been at the center bringing hope and peace and life and comfort. It's just, that's been my experience. But there really isn't any pressure. You don't have to land where I have or where the person who, who invited you here today has. There's no pressure. It's just an invitation to explore. And Alpha, as uh, was mentioned earlier, is a brilliant, brilliant way to do that. Just to take a second look around a meal in conversation with others. You may be here this morning looking for meaning, some, searching for something that would give you strength, something more than just good advice. You may be just feeling weighed down by guilt or shame, feeling like a failure. Perhaps you're looking for something that is, that is true that can really help anchor you in the storms of life. You may be aware that deep down, whilst everything on the surface looks great, you know that you are longing for something more, that you don't have everything together. Whatever it is, I'd love to encourage you this morning Take a second look at Jesus. And perhaps, like with that vase that was used as a goalpost, perhaps he's more valuable than you previously thought. 